open up to Matthew chapter 15. And I want to thank you for supporting Sandy Keaton's apartment ministry to children. She had, if you've seen the email, she, she had over 70 kids come out to that Christmas party. Five, I think, uh, parents and grandparents. Uh, and she was able to minister to them. And it was because of you that she's able to do this. This is a very effective ministry. It's a ministry that we are directly involved with. And we are seeing results. It may end up being one day when we stand before God that any rewards we get are going to be connected to Sandy Keaton's ministry. But a lot of what we do that we call ministry is really high. But in this case, we are ministering to the littlest and the least of society. And we're doing it through this uh, wonderful lady who ministers to children. So continue to pray for her and support her ministry. Okay, now in Matthew chapter 15... Uh, we ended last week in verse 20, and the beginning of chapter 15, we saw that Jesus had a confrontation with the Pharisees over unclean hands. They were concerned about the fact that his disciples didn't wash their hands before they ate, and as a result, may have touched something that was dirty, and it would have defiled them, and they were concerned about ritual defilement, and Jesus said... That's not important at all. What is really important is not what goes in, but what comes out of your heart. It's not dirty hands that matter, it's dirty hearts that matter. So after this confrontation, Jesus leaves the area. And I want you to notice where he goes. Look at verse 21. Then Jesus went from there. That was on the uh, western side of the Sea of Galilee, a Jewish region. And he departed from that region to Tyre and Sidon. Now you're familiar with those words from the Old Testament, Tyre and Sidon. Uh, this is an area that was known in Jesus' day as Syrophoenicia. The Phoenicians lived in this, on this edge of the Mediterranean Sea, and Syria extended all the way over to that edge, and so it was known as Syrophoenicia, and it was Gentile territory. Now that's the important thing that you need to know for these next few verses. Mainly Gentiles live here. And uh, Jesus goes into this area. Now he's already withdrawn uh, from, the, uh, from Israel ideologically. He doesn't agree with the things that they're teaching. They're teaching the traditions of men rather than the word of God. So he is already withdrawn ideologically from Israel, now he withdraws geographically from Israel, and he moves into Gentile territory. Now, if the Pharisees were concerned about unclean hands, uh, what would you think about rubbing shoulders with unclean Gentiles? If you think that other thing bent them out of shape, can you imagine what this does? Now, why does he travel to the Gentile region? Well, the text doesn't say it, but we as we go through the chapter, we assume that he goes there because Gentiles need to hear the gospel. Gentiles need eternal life just as much as the Jews. And so, uh, he goes into this area called Tyre and Sidon. They were twin cities, sort of like Minneapolis and St. Paul, Dallas, Fort Worth. There were cities that had a few miles between them, 
and this was made mainly a Gentile area. And the important thing is that in Old Testament times, this is where the enemies of God lived, the Phoenicians. And so he's going into what we would call not only Gentile territory, but enemy territory. And to top it off, this is where Matthew's audience lives. Remember, Matthew is writing to people who live up in this Syria area up north. And uh, his audience lives here, so this, these cities should resonate uh, with them. And what he has to say should resonate with them. So he goes into this area. And look what it says in verse 22. And behold, a woman of Canaan came from that region. Now, uh, Mark, in his gospel, calls her a Syrophoenician woman, but Matthew calls her a Canaanite. Now, if I said Canaanites, does that sound like good people or bad people? <laughs> in the Old Testament, the Canaanites were bad people. They were the Gentiles, the pagans. Remember, God sent the spies in to spy out the land of Canaan. Remember who helped them? Another Canaanite woman, her name was Rahab. Remember that? And it was this area that the Jews uh, came down into, the Canaanite area. And so Canaan has a lot of Old Testament implications. And that was an area where the enemies of God were in the Old Testament. So that's important that you know that as well. And look what she does. Look what it says in verse 22. And she cried out to him, saying, Have mercy on me, O Lord, son of David. My daughter is severely demon-possessed. Now, notice what she does. She cries out, it says. And uh, the, 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 the verb tense there uh, indicates that she repeatedly cries out to Jesus. And the phrase cries out means she cries out loudly. She cries out loudly. She cries out repeatedly meaning she is trying to get his attention. Hey, over here! If they don't hear you, guess what you say again? Hey, over here! And that's what she's trying to do. She's trying to get his attention. Okay. Notice how she addresses Jesus in verse 22. First of all, she calls him by the title, Lord. For a Gentile, there was only one Lord, and that was Caesar. So she's attributing the authority that Caesar has to Jesus. She looks upon him as her Lord rather than Caesar. Boy, that is a big thing. That can get you in trouble for a Gentile. And then second of all, she calls him son of David, which is a messianic title, meaning king. He is the king of Israel. She believes that the king of Israel is the Lord, not Caesar. Now this is a big paradigm change for a Gentile. Matthew starts his gospel. Remember how he starts the gospel back in chapter 1 and verse 1? He says, the genealogy of Jesus, son of David. Remember how we started out way back there? Son of David, son of Abraham. Look what she calls him right there. Son of David. That's his messianic title. And look at her request. Her request is have mercy on me. Uh, the word mercy means compassion. Uh, it was a word that was used in connection with God's relationship with Israel, God established a covenant with Israel. This is a covenant word. He entered into an agreement with the nation of Israel, and he said, I will have compassion on Israel because I've entered into this relationship with her. 
she has no relationship with Israel. She's a Gentile, and yet she uses this word, have compassion or mercy on me. And what's the reason she wants mercy? She says in verse 22, my daughter is severely demon-possessed. Hey, demon possession sounds bad. What do you think it means, severely demon-possessed? It means that there's no time that she's in control of her life. Usually demons would come and go, throw people down into the water or on the ground or into the fire, cause them to say crazy things. But this girl never has a moment where she is in control of her own life. And so that's the situation. So look what Je- how Jesus responds. I like this. But he answered her not a word. That's not how you expect Jesus to respond. Jesus, when people ask him for help, what does he do? Goes right into action. He's like Superman. But he doesn't do anything. He remains silent. Look what it says there. He answered her not a word. Now why does he break from his normal pattern? I've thought about this as I was reading this. Why does he break from his normal pattern of acting immediately? And I thought, maybe for dramatic effect. That would cause a moment of suspense, wouldn't it? His disciples always expect him to move immediately. Guess what he does? Just look at it. Maybe, I thought, he does it to allow an opportunity for somebody else to speak first. And sure enough, the disciples don't let us down. <laughs> they chirp up immediately. And look what it says. In verse 23. And his disciples came and urged him. See, they they decide to speak. They urged him, send her away. Uh, Why? Because she cries after us. This woman's a pest. She's bothersome. Get rid of her. Just tell her to go away. Notice how they're giving Jesus orders here. They're telling Jesus how to respond. Just... Send her away. That shows compassion, doesn't it? That shows mercy. She's asking for mercy, and what are they doing? Send her away. Very interesting. As we think of the disciples and how Jesus ministers to people. Remember the little kids came to Jesus, and what did they want to do? Send them away! Remember when he wanted to feed the 5,000? What did they want to do? Send them away! Here's a woman whose daughter is severely demon-possessed just asking for a little bit of compassion. Send her away! People come to us for help, and what do we want to do? Now look what happens here. So that's the disciples. They want to send the woman away. Now look at verse 24. But he answered and said, and now he does speak to the woman. He's not speaking to the disciples. When she asked for mercy, I was sent, I was not sent except to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Now why in the world would he say that? She says, show me some mercy. And he said, well, I'm not sent to anybody except the lost sheep of the house of Israel. So when I see these things, see, when I read a text, I'm always asking questions. Who, what, where, how, why, when, you know. So I'm saying, well, why would he say this? Why would he uh, say that he was not sent anywhere? Um, maybe he's trying to see how she'll respond. He's hoping for a reaction from her. You know, 
That was just a little coffee cup over there falling down. If you, could, if you have ears that could hear. <laughs> uh, maybe he's just stating a fact. Well, you know, I want to help you, but I was really sent to the covenant people. Uh, but notice how he describes the covenant people. Lost sheep, in verse 24, of the house of Israel. Lost sheep are sheep that have no leadership. Now, the Pharisees claim to be their leaders. The Sadducees claim to be their leaders. But Jesus sees them leaderless. And uh, they are like sheep that are roaming around. Now, what is her question? What does she ask for? Mercy, my daughter is severely demon-possessed. Jesus' response is not that I won't help you. He doesn't say that, does he? Does he say, no, I'm not going to help? Forget it. He doesn't give that response. He doesn't give the disciples' response. He just simply states a fact. Well, I was really sent to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. And maybe he's trying to get some sort of reaction. I'm not sure. And he does. Look at verse 25. Then she came and worshipped him, which means she fell on her knees, and she said, Lord, help me. Uh, she doesn't give up. She uh, falls down before him, and she begs. Before she requested, now she's on her knees, she's begging, Lord, help me. And I don't think it's like, Lord, help me! I think it's like, Lord, help me. See how the difference is just by reading it one way or the other, from a scream to just a, a plea? This is a woman on her knees. And she's saying, Lord, Lord, help me. Now, I look at this and I said, boy, that's sort of a strange request, isn't it? Look in verse 22. She says, Lord, have mercy on me. Look at verse 25. Lord, help me. And yet it's her daughter who's demon-possessed. Why didn't she say, Lord, help my daughter? Why did she say, Lord, help me? Because, uh, I, I mean, to get rid of the demon is to help the woman. Because this woman is at her wit's end. You know you know what it's like to, to care for somebody who can't help themselves, and this woman doesn't know what to do. And uh, she can't even protect her own daughter. You know, you're supposed to protect your children. She can't do that. She needs help. She needs help. And so even though it's her daughter's problem, she puts it in the terms of, Lord, please help me. And he answered. Look at this. What a strange answer. But he answered. And there's the but again. See, it's sort of like a contrast. It's not good to take the children's bread and throw it to the little dogs. Lord, help me. Well, let me tell you, it's not good to take children's bread and give it to the dogs. Now, he's not speaking literally. He's speaking metaphorically. The children are Israel. It's not good taking what belongs to Israel. What belongs to Israel? The bread. That would be the covenant blessings, the kingdom blessings, and giving it to the dogs. And the dogs represent the Gentiles. It's not good to take what belongs to God's covenant people and give it to the Gentiles. So, he's saying, I'm not under any obligation to give what belongs to God's covenant people to those who are outside the covenant, which are the Gentiles. He doesn't say he won't do it. 
He just says it's not good to do that. So now we get her reaction. She said, yes, Lord. Yet even little dogs eat the crumbs which fall from the master's table. She uh, takes Jesus' words, she turns them around, and she says, you know something, Jesus? I don't want what belongs to the Jews, to the covenant people. I just want some crumbs. Just some of the leftovers. And you know from reading Luke and other passages that that most houses had dogs. And those dogs were used as uh, biological vacuum cleaners. <laughs> In Bible times, uh, people would eat. They didn't use utensils. Uh, they ate with their hands. Their crumbs would fall on the floor. And the dogs would come and eat the crumbs. The dogs didn't eat T-bone steak. But they did get the crumbs. And she says, you know, uh, I don't want the food or the blessings that belong to the nation of Israel. Just give me the crumbs. So she turns Jesus' statement back in on him, and she gets one up on Jesus. The only time that I can find in the Bible that anybody gets one up on Jesus. Just think about that. This is a woman who, who's thinking very clearly, and she's, she's desperate. So uh, Jesus says the bread is for the Jews, but he doesn't negate the dogs get something, and she realizes there's a little loophole there in his statement, and so she turns Jesus' statement around and uses it. And Jesus answered her in verse 28, and look how he answered her. And now we have the positive statement. O woman, great is your faith. Let it be to you as you desire, and then Matthew adds, and her daughter was healed that very hour. Now I want you to notice the persistence of faith. You see, this is what faith looks like. He calls her, says her faith is great. You want to see what great faith looks like? Great faith is persistent. Great faith never gives up. Great faith attacks things from every angle. Great faith throws themselves at the mercy of God. And it doesn't matter what your problem is. I don't care what your problem is. Never give up. Whether it's a financial problem, a physical problem, whatever the situation is with a child or a grandchild, don't you, you be like this woman and don't ever give up because faith moves the hand of God. And His compassion will reach out to even people who don't deserve it if they're willing to keep coming and begging for help and never giving up. So that's scene number one. Now we move to scene number two. <clears throat> now look at verse 29. Jesus departed from there and he skirted the Sea of Galilee. And that's an important statement there. And he went up on the mountain and he sat down. He takes the position of a rabbi. <clears throat> now, usually what Jesus does is when he leaves a region, he gets into a boat and he goes on the other side of the Sea of Galilee. We've seen that happen several times in Matthew's Gospel. But in this time, he doesn't do that. He skirts. He goes around the northern part of the Sea of Galilee and he goes north, deeper into Gentile territory. So he's not going to move back into Jewish territory. He goes into Gentile territory. He ascends a hill 
And he sits down and he takes the position of a teacher, of a rabbi. Very similar to what you see earlier in Matthew, in Matthew 5-7, through 7, where Jesus sits down on the mountain and he gives the Sermon on the Mount. I think he's doing the exact same thing here to the Gentiles. He's giving them, in a sense, the Sermon on the Mount. Doesn't say that, but you'll see that there's a pattern. And I think the same thing he did in Jewish territory, he does in the Gentile territory. Because the next thing it says, and great multitudes came to him, this would be of the Gentiles, having with them the lame, the blind, the mute, maimed, and many others, and they laid them down at Jesus' feet, and he healed them. So the multitude marveled when they saw the mute speaking, and the maimed made whole, and the lame walking, and the blind seeing, and they glorified the God of Israel. Now this is very similar. If verse 29 is similar to Matthew 5 through 7, the Sermon on the Mount, verses 31 and 30, 30 and 31, the healing of the Multitudes is very similar to Matthew 8 and 9, where Jesus, those two chapters just deal with Jesus healing and healing and healing Jews. Now guess what? He heals and heals and heals Gentiles. You say, well, how do you know this is Gentile? Because look what it says at the end of verse 31. They glorified the God of who? Of Israel. These aren't Jews. <laughs> These are Gentiles who are glorifying the God of Israel uh, for what he is doing through Jesus. Now, we don't know how much time has passed. In fact, probably uh, you know weeks passed. We, you know, Matthew's comprising three years of Jesus' life into just a few short paragraphs and chapters here. So now we move to scene number three. Now look what happens in verse 32. Now Jesus called the disciples to himself, and he said, I have compassion... That's the same root of mercy. I have compassion on the multitudes because they have now continued with me for three days and they have nothing to eat. I do not want to send them away hungry lest they faint on the way. Then his disciples said, well, where could we? And that's where the emphasis is. Where could we get enough bread in the wilderness uh, to feed such a multitude? And Jesus said, well, how many loaves do you have? And they said, well, seven and a few little fish. And he commanded the multitude to sit down on the ground. And he took the seven loaves and the fish, and he gave thanks. And he broke it, and he gave it to the disciples. And the disciples gave it to the multitudes. So that they all ate and were filled. And they took up seven large baskets full of the fragments that left over, were left over. Now, those who ate were 4,000 men besides the women and children. Now, immediately we begin to see a pattern. If you've been with us, you see the pattern right here. This looked very similar to the feeding of the 5,000. Some commentaries actually believe it's the same story. Just repeat it for effect, only with Gentile. It's not, I don't think, I think that would be a dishonest account. I don't see that happening. Uh, the circumstances are entirely different. In fact, look at in this scenario, in verse 32, these people have been with Jesus for three days, it says, specifically for three days. The Jews were just with Jesus one day late into the night when he fed the 5,000, remember that? These are Gentiles, the other group that he fed were Jews. In the other situation, the disciples took the initiative. They came to Jesus and said, what are we going to do with all these people? 
In this situation, Jesus takes the initiative. He says, what are we going to do with all these people? Uh, in the other situation, there were five loaves and two fishes. In this situation, there are seven loaves and a few fishes. A few means what? We have more than two. Right? Two is a couple. Three or more would be a few. So there are seven loaves and a few fishes. Okay? Not five. In verse 35, he commands them to sit on the ground. In the feeding of the 5,000, he commanded them to sit on the grass, which showed us that it was springtime. Now there is no grass. The grass has been scorched. This is a summertime event. So we see that. And then the leftovers, there are seven baskets left over. In the other one, there was 12 baskets of leftovers. We talked about 12 being the number that's related to the nation of Israel. Seven is a number that talks about completion or perfection or fulfillment. And it seems like Jesus' ministry is not to the Jews only, but it is to the Gentiles as well. He has a fuller ministry. And so I believe that what we have here is we have a real second miracle of feeding, and it's feeding of 4,000 Gentiles plus women and children. And then verse 39 says, And he sent away the multitude, and look what he does now. He gets into the boat, and he comes to the region of Magdala, which means he now goes back in the Jewish territory, where he immediately, in verse 1 of chapter 16, meets those nice people, the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and guess what they are trying to do? They are testing him. They are tempting him. They're going to try to draw him into a trap and expose him as a false messiah. Now let me give you some lessons from this passage that we covered today. Uh, the first thing I want you to see is that uh, while the Gentiles were not included in the Old Covenant, it was definitely for the nation of Israel, he is including them in this New Covenant. The same covenant, mercy, and blessings, and compassion that he gives to the Jews, he now extends to the Gentiles. Uh, this is the Christmas message. For God so loved the world not just the Jews. He loves all of us. No one is left out. Second thing I want you to notice from this passage, and I really think that's probably the big lesson, because the lesson is how he ministers to the Gentiles, and they don't come behind one whit. Everything that he's done for the Jews, he does also for the Gentiles. The second thing is when heaven is silent, and this is one that we've just touched upon, but it's so important. Uh, don't give up. When heaven is silent, don't give up. Somehow we think if we pray and we pray and we pray, we should just know there's no answer. We should give up. Okay. Jesus commends everybody who doesn't give up as having great faith in the New Testament. Remember the story that he tells about a woman who goes to a judge and she goes, help, 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 help. And the judge finally says, look, you warned me down on help Remember about the woman who has a visitor at midnight and she goes to the next door neighbor and she knocks on the door? The neighbor's in bed and says, who in the world could that be at midnight? She just keeps on going. Finally, I'm getting out of bed. 
Because I need some food. Is that the visitors? There's a persistence. There is a uh, a perseverance that attends faith. Faith that does not persist, faith that does not persevere, is not faith. Faith that does not persevere is not faith. You might call it faith, it's not faith. That's why we see people coming and say, I'm putting my faith in Christ. And guess what? Three or four years later, they drop by the wayside, they, their lives become a mess, and say, I don't know if they were saved. But no, they weren't. That was not saving faith. Saving faith is persevering faith. And faith moves the hand of God, even for people who don't deserve it. And then the third thing I want you to notice is the contrast in this entire chapter between the Pharisees and this woman. The Pharisees were the purest. They were concerned about ritual purity and cleanness. Here was a woman that was absolutely unclean. Uh, this woman had nothing to commend herself to God, according to the Pharisees. Uh, all she wants is a favor from God. They think they're doing God a favor. The Pharisees think they're doing God a favor by serving Him and protecting the religion. But notice, the Pharisees are the ones who oppose Jesus. The woman is the one who falls at the feet of Jesus and says, I need help. Now let me ask you, who do you think God really is more pleased with? The Pharisees? Who can trace their heritage back several generations through their denomination or their church or through their party? Or this woman who has no connection whatsoever to God, but in a time of desperation recognizes who he is, the God of Israel, recognizes who Jesus is, the Messiah, her Lord, and falls at his feet for help. So, uh, these Pharisees, they would have never rubbed shoulders with this woman. If they did, it would only be to make her a proselyte type. Proselyte. To convert her. They would only be concerned about her soul. We want to convert her. We want her to become a Jew. We want her to stop being unclean. We want her to be like ourselves. They were only concerned to make her one of their converts. Jesus was concerned about making her family whole. See, that's what Jesus is concerned about. He's, more, he's concerned more than just with your soul. Salvation is about wholeness. The wholeness of families coming together. The wholeness and the healing of bodies. The deliverance from evil. And that's where we'll stop. The next week we'll pick up and we'll see how Jesus tells his disciples, I know the Pharisees are powerful, And I know they're the religious representatives of Israel, but you need to beware of the leaven. That which is hidden in the human heart that you can't see of the Pharisees. Because it will get you in trouble if you follow them. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for this Christmas season that you're a God who loved the world, sent your only begotten Son, Jesus that whosoever, that includes me, a Gentile, and those in this class, whether Jew or Gentile, that believes on you shall not perish but have everlasting life. Lord, we thank you for this passage. May it minister to us. 
May we take it to heart and put our faith in action. In Christ's name we pray. Thank you.